thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Growth, said the 19th century priest and philosopher John Henry Newman, is the only evidence of life. And with talk like that, if Newman was still alive today, Liz Truss would probably have given him a job in the cabinet. Liz Truss mentioned growth 29 times in her 35-minute leader speech at the Tory party conference last week. I have three priorities for our economy. Growth, growth and growth. The Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, mentioned growth 24 times in his 26-minute statement in the House of Commons, unveiling his so-called mini-budget last month. Today's statement is about growth. Growth is, I don't know, is kind of a weirdly abstract concept to base an entire political strategy on. An Ipsos poll found half the population were not confident they could explain what economic growth even means. But whatever it is, you'd better get behind it, or our new Prime Minister will throw you in with the dangerous band of opposition MPs, striking trade unionists and protesting eco-warriors that she has dubbed the anti-growth coalition. Yikes. Let's get them removed. Now, at risk of being chucked into the anti-growth gulag, along with Greenpeace, the National Trust, Rishi Sunak, and Britain's other most wanted subversives, it would seem churlish not to point out here, as if anyone needed reminding, that the main impact of Truss and Kwarteng's plan for growth so far has been to crash the markets and send borrowing rates through the roof. The Bank of England has made a dramatic intervention today to try to calm the markets. This from the Bank of England, a promise that they would not hesitate to change interest rates. Now the British pound has fallen to its lowest level ever against the US dollar. Pounds worth a pound, man. What about with buying other currencies? Why would I buy another currency? I've got a pound. (laughs) In fact, the plan for growth landed so uniquely badly that as I'm making this podcast on Thursday afternoon, discussions are underway in Downing Street right now about ditching large parts of it altogether, while discussions continue among Tory MPs about ditching Truss and Kwarteng as well. But then nothing is really unique in life or in politics, is it? For those with long memories, the Kami Quasi budget has brought back memories of a distant time when jeans had bell-bottoms, Derby County were top of the football league 
and Slade and T-Rex were slugging it out at the top of the charts. For if you rewind the clock exactly 50 years, to 1972, you'll find another Tory Chancellor unveiling his very own dash for growth. In his 1972 budget, Anthony Barber, a name rarely mentioned in Westminster nowadays prior to a few short weeks ago, unveiled a huge package of unfunded tax cuts to boost the economy. And the result, for Britain, was not exactly great. You go out with a pound in your purse, there anyone... you come back without any change. You can ask anybody round here. That money doesn't go as far now as what it did before. And enticingly for Labour supporters, it wasn't great for the Tory party either. They were booted unceremoniously out of power two years later. Labour is now set for having a clear overall majority. The parallels with today seem almost too neat to be true. But is Quasi Kwarteng, himself an economic historian, really repeating the same Tory mistakes from half a century ago? And was that disastrous budget really the reason the Tories were ousted from power two years later? We've got a job to do, and I'm going right in to start that job now. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking back at the disastrous dash for growth of 1972, and considering what lessons today's crop of politicians might learn from how it all played out. It's July 1970, and Anthony Barber is having a really good dinner. Recently appointed Britain's chief negotiator for gaining entry to what was then the European Economic Community, a sort of reverse David Davis, if you like. Barber was having the first of what he expected would be many fine banquets at European embassies around London, when an urgent message recalled him to Westminster. Ian MacLeod, the newly appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer, who'd been rushed to hospital just two weeks earlier with stomach pains, had died suddenly at home in 11 Downing Street. He was just one month into the job. Barber, until then a pretty low-key cabinet minister, was summoned to number 10 by Prime Minister Ted Heath. I hope he's not going to ask me to be Chancellor, Barber remarked with a worried chuckle on his way in. But it was no joke. Anthony Barber was Heath's surprise pick for the second biggest job in government, and nobody had seen it coming. The Labour leader, Harold Wilson, said dryly that Barber's appointment as Chancellor was the first time he realised Ted Heath had a sense of humour. Anthony Barber was a very reluctant Chancellor. He was an inexperienced Chancellor. This is the economic historian Duncan Needham. He runs the Centre for Financial History at Cambridge University. He admitted himself that he had no great understanding of economic issues. And that really reflects the fact that Ted Heath, the Prime Minister, really wanted to be his own Chancellor. So he he deliberately put a a fairly inexperienced, in retrospect, a fairly weak Chancellor um, in, in place. So this was very much Heath's dash for growth budget rather than Barber's. Could you set the scene for us in 1972? What sort of country is Britain at that time and what's the political and economic backdrop? The economy's in quite a difficult place in 1972. We've been growing at about 3% GDP growth per annum 
through the 1960s, but that growth has dropped in the early 1970s. So the economy is growing at around 1%. We've got the first national miners' strike, well, since the 1920s, in 1972, and therefore a state of emergency has been declared and and the economy is on a three-day week. So we've got a lot of labour unrest and we've got very low economic growth. And that's really what's driving the dash for growth budget. The Prime Minister Ted Heath is, is trying to elevate the economy onto a higher growth plane. And another piece of context that's quite important um, is that we joined the European Economic Community on the 1st of January 1973. Now, we're joining an economic community with countries such as Germany that's growing on average 5%, France, Italy growing on average more like 6%, and we're bumbling along at about 1%. So the idea is if we can force the economy to grow at a, at a higher average level, we'll be able to better compete with our European partners. The budget is presented to the nation by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Right Honourable Anthony Barber. In March 1972, two years into the new Tory government, Heath and Barber unveiled their master plan to solve the problem. A radical budget designed to send growth rates rocketing, courtesy of a massive programme of unfunded tax cuts. The Chancellor said that the budget would have an immediate impact on the economy of this country. They injected an estimated 2% of GDP growth uh, in in demand, and that came almost entirely through income tax cuts. The tax-free allowance uh, for a single person was raised by 41.5%. And that gives us a a, a pretty significant contrast with with what happened in the the more recent uh, mini-budget, where the the cuts were were focused on the the higher earners with the the reversal um, of the 45% rate. Obviously, one of the, the key criticisms of uh, Kwasi Kwarteng's budget last month was that there was no plan set out clearly for how he was going to pay for all his tax cuts. Did Anthony Barber have a plan for paying for this huge change in income tax uh, allowances? It, it's a good question because he did depart from the post-war orthodoxy, which was that chancellors set out broadly to balance their budgets in peacetime. Now, Barber planned for a 5% deficit. As I say, that was very, very unusual at the time. So he did say, you know, I am going to borrow to finance um, some of these tax cuts. But one of the other differences is that the, 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 the level of the national debt as a percentage of GDP was much, much lower in the early 1970s. We were sitting at about 50% uh, national debt as a ratio of, of GDP. We're now sitting at about 100%. So, so in a sense, it was much less of a risk to the markets to be announcing a deficit finance budget in 1972 than it is now. So these were tax cuts that were less targeted at the upper end than the ones we've had recently and against a a better debt backdrop, if if you like. And yet, (laughs) how, how, how did it play out over the year or two that followed? Well, it, it, it didn't end well. You know, when, when we think of the, the, the 1970s in this country, we think of inflation. Uh, and inflation did peak at 26.9% uh, in August 1975. So that's a little bit later. 26.9%. 26.9% year on year. Now, that is a little bit after, you know, Heath loses power um, at the end of February um, 1974. But the way mon- monetary policy works with long and variable lags, so you can, you, you can say that that inflation was essentially in the post from the earlier part of, of the Heath government. Had there been warnings at the time of the 1972 budget that this may be a a, a very inflationary thing to do? There were people that were very worried about um, this dash for growth budget in 1972, and they included the Governor of the Bank of England and the people that were running the Treasury at the time. So what the Governor of the Bank of England uh, and the Permanent Secretary of the Treasury at the time did was um, they 
said to the Chancellor, we think, you know, we think this is a risk. Um, we think it will, will fuel inflation. So what they did on the day of the 1972 budget was they got the Chancellor to agree to a money supply target. So here are the early shoots of monetarism. Were he here today, Anthony Barber might say, or Edward Heath might say, that their budget of 1972 wasn't the only thing affecting what happened to the UK economy after that. Yeah, no, you've, you've, you've got a problem with inflation across the globe in the, in the mid-1970s. The, the question is, why did Britain have higher inflation? So we had inflation peaking in the US at about 12, just over 12%, 12.2% around this time. You've got inflation peaking in Germany at 7.8%. So if, if inflation in the States is 12.2%, why on earth is inflation in the UK at 26.9% at the same time? So everybody has inflation, and that's got a lot to do with the oil shock um, at, at the end of 1973 that follows the Yom Kippur War, the Arab-Israeli War. So the price of oil quadruples, you know, oil is the most important commodity in the economy, you know, we can't get around, you know, we can't fertilise our crops. So everybody has inflation in the, in the mid-1970s, but why does Britain have it worse? And it's really three things. One is the very loose fiscal policy of the Dash for Growth budget, which we've just, we've just been talking about, but there's actually a, a very loose monetary policy as well. He refused to raise interest rates. He didn't believe that raising interest rates um, would do anything other than, than, than affect the value of the pound. Um, and every time the governor of the Bank of England said, you really need to raise interest rates because the economy is overheating, he, he, he refused um, to do that until, until later on in his administration. But then you've also got very loose incomes policy. And this is where you could say that the government was actually slightly unlucky um, in 1973. What the Heath government did was essentially gave everybody in the economy a 7% wage rise to try and head off some of the industrial unrest. The Heath government said, we'll give everybody a 7% wage rise because they were aiming for 7% inflation. And for every 1% that inflation is above 7%, you'll essentially get a 1% wage rise. No need to go on strike, no need to ballot your members. You will see it in your weekly wage packet. So the, the, the mistake was, was indexing wages across the British economy to inflation just as the price of oil quadruples. And you end up with this doomsday machine that the price of oil rises, therefore inflation rises, therefore everybody's wages rise, everybody's wages rise, so inflation rises even more, and everybody's wages rise even more. So you get into this doom loop, and that doomsday machine isn't, isn't, isn't diffused until 1975. So that's really why Britain has it so much worse. We've got loose fiscal policy, we've got loose monetary policy, and we've got a very unlucky incomes policy. Fascinating. So, so some of the factors from 1972, some of the parallels of a global energy crisis and a, a, a global spike in inflation, and also British government reacting to that with big tax cuts, which may further fuel inflation. How far can we make this comparison? I mean, do, do you think it does it feel weirdly echoing of, of the 70s to you, what's happening right now? It did. When the mini budget was first announced, it, it felt a lot like 1972. But actually, on, on reflection, I think the, the, the global situation is, is slightly different. The domestic situation is slightly different. We've got um, a much less unionised wage force um, today and we've got a much more flexible labour force. So it's possible that the wage price spiral may be, you know, may, may be less this time around. We've got an independent Bank of England. Heath refused to raise interest rates. It will not be up to um, the Prime Minister today whether interest rates go up or not. But one key difference, um, I think, is that um, household incomes kept rising through the mid-1970s. And that's where that wage price spiral re really kicked in. One of the major differences now is that, you know, with a much less unionised economy, we're actually seeing household incomes falling now, as opposed to rising in, in, in the mid-1970s. And I think that's probably quite a key difference. 
And that's obviously very, very difficult for many, many houses. Are you saying it's less likely, though, to lead to the doom loop that you described? It is, and and, and it's very painful for, for, for households. But if you look at household incomes, they, they kept on rising through 73, through 74, through 75. And when they did, when household incomes in real terms did start declining in 1976, 1977, they were dropping by, you know, one or two percent at the time. You know, household incomes, particularly for those, you know, in, in the low, lower end of the, of the wage scale, are dropping by multiples of that. So it's going to be much, much tougher. Now, all of this economic pain in the early 1970s spelled political opportunity for the opposition Labour Party, much as it does today. Their former PM, Harold Wilson, had been booted out of Downing Street in 1970 after six years in power. But he'd stayed on as Labour leader and was hoping to stage an unlikely comeback as Prime Minister at the next general election. As inflation soared in the wake of the Barber budget, he spied his chance. The Heath government's stewardship of the economy undoubtedly opened up an opportunity for Harold Wilson as leader of the opposition. This is the historian and Labour shadow cabinet minister, Nick Thomas Simmons, who recently published a major biography of Harold Wilson, titled The Winner. Tony Barber's 1972 budget had a number of consequences that opened up these opportunities. Borrowing money for tax cuts, which sounds very familiar, doesn't it? When it was done at the time, Roy Jenkins, who of course had been the last Labour Chancellor, was very critical about this and said it would it would lead to inflation, it would eventually lead to cuts in public spending, and that's of course precisely what does happen. Towards the end of 1972, because of the inflation, Heath finds himself having to adopt what was then called an incomes policy which is essentially in, in three stages. The first bit is you freeze prices and incomes. Second bit is there's a limit to wage rises. And the third bit is it, it added a triggering clause. If inflation was above a certain level, it would trigger particular uh, pay rises. The first reason why that benefited Harold Wilson is because it was very similar to the kind of policies Harold had run in government in the 1960s and been heavily criticised by Edward Heath for at the time. It made Heath look very incompetent and inept because the thing that he'd criticised Labour for, the thing he said he wouldn't do, he then found himself actually doing. And the other thing that, that destroys this policy is the Yom Kippur War breaks out in the Middle East and the price of a barrel of oil rockets up, which of course adds to the huge problem of inflation. By December 1973, you've got a dispute in the coal industry, the state of emergency, the three-day week and all those things. Um, and so I guess going into an election in 1974, people were feeling hard up and the country didn't feel like it was running very well and all of that benefits the opposition. Yes, and Harold Wilson did have an alternative to this, which he called the social contract. And his social contract is based on the idea that if trade unions are restrained in their demands for wage rises, what the government would do was offer wider social reforms that the trade unions were demanding. So in return for foregoing large pay rises, what you get under the social contract are things like the Health and Safety at Work Act, which is the foundation of modern-day health and safety law, 
the Employment Protection Act, which included statutory maternity leave for the first time. Things like ACAS, the conciliation body that today exists to try and mediate an employment dispute, was created as well. Just tell us about the election itself, or the first one in 1974. It's obviously a very close-run thing. Were Labour expecting to win? It's one of the rare examples of where the polls actually overestimate the Conservatives and underestimate Labour, which is very uncommon in post-war politics. But there's a number of other things that happen in that 1974 election that do favour Labour. So Heath calls the Who Governs Britain election on the basis of a dispute with the miners. Uh, And a few things happen. Firstly, Tony Barber himself inadvertently helped the Labour Party with a party political broadcast in which he decried the idea that militants should be able to create so much chaos they could make the government do what they wanted, but with Labour politicians shown on the screen. And remember, these are Labour politicians who've been in power in the previous government. It just looked like very irresponsible mudslinging. There was also the episode of what became known as the Figures Figures. And this is about a man called Sir Frank Figures, appropriately named, who was chair of the... uh, Hayboard that was looking into the whole issue of miners' pay that had prompted the election in the first place. Now, he actually discovered that if you did look at the national average manufacturing workers, miners were underpaid, which of course undercuts the whole reason why Heath called the election in the first place. The other two things, and, and it's quite strange to look back on this now, that really were significant. Firstly, in the last week of the campaign, there was a set of trade figures that came out that were not favourable to the government. The other thing was the maverick intervention of Enoch Powell in the final week. Enoch Powell had been a Conservative, but by now has, has fallen out with Heath. And Enoch Powell is essentially on the issue of Europe going to come across and say, you must vote Labour. And does it because Harold has promised a referendum, because he feels on on that issue so strongly. That maverick intervention, does it seem now, have had a major impact. Yeah, and and, and I guess in every election campaign, you have these campaign moments, don't you, that that can help swing key votes in either way. The bigger picture, though, I guess... um, if you believe Bill Clinton is, in the end of the day, it's the economy, stupid. And so, and was it? I mean, in the end, was the shift because the, the British economy was in a bad place, a worse place? That is undoubtedly the central argument of the 1974 campaign. And it is, it is not only the fact that it uh, really undermines the government in office, but it was also the fact that Harold, with his social contract, did have an alternative way forward. So that's a disastrous Tory budget, exacerbating tough global economic trends and precipitating a victory for the Labour opposition at an election two years later. So is Liz Truss really just repeating the mistakes of 1972? We'll be talking Trussonomics and what comes next after the break. Stay with us. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Even for a grey-haired, world-weary political veteran like your podcast host, the 1970s are now a very long time ago. Well... Um, I was only five in 1972, so I can't quite remember what it felt like. Though I do do remember the power cuts of uh, a, a year a year later and sort of eating by candlelight. This is Paul Johnson, who, as director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, is one of the UK's best known and most respected economists. I wondered if he thought the parallels between 1972 and 2022 were fair. Oh, and he, I should add, like all our interviewees, was speaking before reports of a major Downing Street U-turn started to emerge on Thursday afternoon. I mean, there, there are clearly some similarities. I mean, you've got Conservative Chancellor in each case looking to turbocharge the economy with a great big fiscal boost. I mean, there are some differences um, now in the way that this is pushing so directly against monetary policy, which is independently handled by the Bank of England. That was less true back in 1972. We have got clearly big inflationary pressures now, just as we had in the early 1970s. I mean, I genuinely hope this doesn't turn out like that budget. I think that it's fair to say the 1972 budget is has gone down in history as probably the worst uh, since the Second World War. I hope this doesn't go down as um, the worst or the second worst, because it was very damaging. In historic terms, how significant was the mini-budget of September 2022? It was a pretty significant event in at least three ways, really. I mean, one, it was a remarkable uh, about-turn on previous policy, probably a bigger about-turn than uh, happens after most general elections when a new party is elected. Certainly if you look back at 2010 or 1997, you didn't get anything like that degree of change in policy and economic policy as what we've seen between March 2022 and September 2022. Secondly, it was significant because of the scale of the announced tax cuts, uh, the biggest uh, set of tax cuts announced since 1972, um, bigger even than the very big tax cuts that Nigel Lawson announced in 1988. 
And third, uh, it's very significant because of the immediate and very negative market reaction to it. I think uh, interest rates on government debt rose more quickly on a day than they've ever done before. So a very sharp and very negative market reaction to a very big fiscal event, uh, which was a very big change on previous government policy. Now, for my sins, I've been covering the Tory leadership contest pretty closely through the summer, and Liz Truss had made it pretty clear that she was planning big tax cuts, cancelling planned tax rises. Do you think the markets were not paying attention, or did this all go much further than people were expecting? That is a very good question, which I've been asking myself, because, uh, as you say, most of the tax changes were extremely well trailed. It's hard to second-guess the markets, but I think... Um, it would have been a combination of factors. The fact that not only was there no watering down of proposals made in the heat of an election campaign, they were actually ramped up a bit. Of course, this came not long after the sacking of the permanent secretary at the Treasury. You had the Chancellor suggesting he was going to do more, and you had no indication at all of how uh, fiscal sustainability was going to be Reattained. And of course, all of that has come on top of years now of political uncertainty in the UK, certainly at least since 2016. So it may well be one of these things where it was the, the straw that broke the camel's back rather than anything else. But it's always very hard to second guess exactly what it is that drives these market reactions. In, in her party conference speech last week, the Prime Minister made it pretty clear she believes fundamentally that tax cuts deliver economic growth. Does the evidence suggest she's right? Well, all else equal, um, lower taxes are generally better for uh, economic growth than higher taxes. If you could cut the rate of tax costlessly uh, and that didn't impact anything else, then then yes, that would help. But, but and there's lots of buts here. First, it's in no sense uh, a silver bullet. We know that most other Western European countries have significantly higher tax burdens than we do and grow faster than we do. Secondly, of course, these tax cuts, a lot of them were really about getting taxes back to where they were a couple of years ago. Um, and we've had poor growth for a long period. I think third and most importantly, I think where Liz Truss is absolutely right is that growth is crucial here. And government can have positive effects on growth through a whole series of policies associated with education and infrastructure and planning and competition policy and tax. Uh, But to hang everything or nearly everything off uh, a single set of tax cuts is is to oversimplify uh, the problem quite significantly. How unusual is it for a chancellor to unveil a big spending, I I guess it is a spending package like that, without also showing how they're going to pay for it? I've been covering politics for 10 years and I can't remember it happening quite on that scale before. Well, we've had quite a lot of fiscal events in the last three years when chancellors have come to Parliament to put a lot of money into the economy because of Covid and because of the energy price squeeze. But the thing that was different uh, this time was that these were permanent tax cuts, very big permanent tax cuts, made without any accompanying uh, assessment of the public finances and barely any acknowledgement even uh, that this might require some movement on the other side of the ledger. Clearly, if, you're, if you've if got lower taxes, 
you just have to, in the end, have lower spending than you were otherwise going to have. But we got no indication of what that might look like from the Chancellor. So, yes, I think this was really quite uh, unusual. I can't, like you, I can't think of a, a similar event where we've had such a big shift in fiscal policy on one side without any consideration of what might happen on the other side. And I've been looking at these things, I'm afraid, for a lot more than 10 years. Indeed, economists across the board seem in agreement that this was the almighty clangor which Truss and Quartain dropped. It was the refusal to have their plans audited, or even to spell out how they'd be paid for, plus the hint that there was much more to come. The narrative that quickly emerged was that there were, there were bad vibes. This is Sumeya Keynes, Britain economics editor for The Economist and co-host of the Money Talks podcast. It wasn't so much the extent of the borrowing. It was the fact that there were these extra, extra bits, right? It was the signalling that the government really didn't seem to mind very much about how to fund some of these these tax cuts. Um, and then there was the signal that perhaps even more tax cuts might be forthcoming. So I think those bad vibes in a context where, you know, global investors were getting a bit nervous, interest rates are rising everywhere, um, not a good environment in which to make mistakes. And a mistake was made here. You've been watching economics for a while. Was Did this... I keep calling it a mini budget. Did this mini budget feel very different to financial statements we've seen in the UK over recent years to you? Yeah, not mini at all. <laughs> um, it, it did feel a bit different from earlier fiscal statements. I mean, in normal times, and I'm I'm excluding the COVID period from this, you really have these major, major fiscal announcements alongside an official set of forecasts from the Office for Budget Responsibility. This time, we didn't have that. The OBR did actually offer to provide, perhaps not the full maximum set of forecasts, but they offered to provide something. And the government essentially said, nah, we're all right. The other unusual thing, under Rishi Sunak, uh, under George Osborne, there was lots of attention paid to fiscal responsibility. Right. There were clear limits on borrowing, on debt. And in this fiscal statement, essentially, the government announced a lot of tax cuts, £45 billion worth, and was very, very vague about how it might fill any hole that emerged in the public finances as a result. And I think that offers a clue as to why investors reacted quite so badly. One of the factors I find quite strange in the last few weeks is that all the problems that we've seen in the UK financial markets have somehow been attributed in the narrative to the mini-budget itself. Here's Gerard Lyons, Chief Economic Strategist at Net Wealth, host of the What the Hell is Economics podcast, and a former Boris Johnson advisor, who's often now referred to as Liz Truss's favourite economist. The mini-budget was the third in the sequence of events that I think really led to the problems. First was the global backdrop, where the Americans were quite aggressive in their messaging on the Wednesday before the mini-budget when the US Fed raised rates and indicated they would do substantially more. Then on the Thursday, the Bank of England slightly disappointed the markets by only raising by half a percent, but more particularly said that it would engage in quantitative tightening, thus selling gilts. 
But then the MIDI budget came along, and quite frankly, it should have stuck to exactly what was expected, being a fiscal statement announcing the energy price cap and reversing the two planned tax increases. Once it strayed a bit further, then I wasn't surprised that the markets took it badly, although the extent of the um, downturn probably was hard to fully expect in advance. That's really interesting because actually the, the extra bits that he added on that we weren't expecting were only a very small proportion of the overall package of spending that, that, and, and tax cutting that he announced. That's right. In fact, if one looks at the energy levy and then take that out, then of the rest of the fiscal changes, 89% were just reversing the two planned tax increases, national insurance and the planned increase in corporation tax for next spring. So the additional tax and spending amount was very small indeed. It was only 11% of the fiscal boost. Um, I think the key was the announcement of the cut in the top rate of tax. Now, in tax simplification terms, that's understandable. And in economic terms, it's very small. But because no one was marking the Chancellor's homework, because there was an absence of the OBR going through the data, and because critics of the government had in the days before talked about this being trickle-down economics, and trickle-down economics is, in my view, a load of nonsense, and no one really buys into it. But because of the announcement of the tax cut, it added to this narrative that really this is a dash for growth, it's about tax cuts, whereas tax cuts are only a small part of the overall plan. The, um, the comparison that has been made uh, by various commentators over recent weeks is with the 1972 dash for growth budget uh, from the Tory Chancellor Tony Barber. What do you think of that comparison? I don't think the comparison with the Barber boom is correct. Um, for a start, if we look at the current situation with Kwasi Kwarteng, of those so-called tax cuts, as we just mentioned, the vast bulk were reversing planned tax increases. The UK was the only G7 country going into this global downturn, raising taxes. So reversing taxes uh, or reversing tax increases isn't um, necessarily the same thing. More importantly, though, a big difference with uh, 72 is that then it was very much a dash for growth. It was very much about boosting demand, whereas the vast bulk of the package unveiled the other week here was about the supply side of the economy. Um, it was about trying to boost investment, boost innovation. Obviously, there was an income tax cut and there was the top rate of tax at that time being reduced. Uh, so they might have allowed that narrative with 72 to sort of gather momentum. I asked the same question to Paul Johnson of the IFS. I think in some ways the current moment is a bit more like 1976 when we had to be bailed out by the IMF. Now let me be clear, I'm not in any sense that we're not going to end up being bailed out by the IMF. But it was the conclusion of a, a whole set of problems facing the UK economy and UK politics with higher inflation than other countries, terrible industrial relations, concerns about the structure of economic policy, which kind of blew up. And I sort of think that's where we are here. We've had several years of problems with Brexit, problems with political instability, problems with politicians um, talking about the Bank of England in negative ways and so on. And it's sort of in the markets blew up a bit with this budget. It's always, as I said, very hard to specify the moment at which that credibility starts to seep away. And I think that's that's sort of where we've got 
now um, and it's difficult to claw that back once you've begun to lose it. Given where we are now, with the market still in chaos and the government scrambling to steady the ship, it's hard to be positive about how things pan out from here. In the 1970s, after all, the UK economy was not stabilised for many years after the shocks of the early part of the decade. And indeed, it became as much a problem for the incoming Labour government as it had been for Ted Heath. Most economists agree that difficult times lie ahead. Could there still be any positive future for Liz Truss's brand of economics, given the way things have panned out the past few weeks? The real positive, I think, that will come out, hopefully, of the last few weeks is about a focus on the pro-growth agenda. Gerard Lyons again. We certainly have, since the 2008 financial crisis, become a low-growth, low-productivity, low-wage economy. And even though all governments basically say they want higher growth, what Liz Truss has tried to do is put it centre stage. Tax cuts, I think, would just be a part of it. If trust economics, or however you define it, is to succeed, and if it's to be really differentiated from the early 70s, it's about the whole supply side, and it's about boosting investment, not just in plant and machinery, but in terms of skills and training, more innovation, more infrastructure spending, and a lot of that was contained in the pro-growth report. So I think it's in its early stages, it's too early to write off, but often how you start off sets the narrative. And I don't think they could have started, um, shall we say, any worse. It's hard to imagine it. But they haven't been helped. They were given a hospital pass by the Bank of England. Uh, The international environment has been very difficult. But even so, you need to adapt your policies to suit the environment. I would love for the economic boom to arrive Here's Sumeya Keynes of The Economist on the chances of everything just turning out really well. I would love for us all to gallop into a sunlit upland of, of wealth and prosperity. I'm, I'm sceptical, right? And I think the reason for that is that growth is hard. If there were easy things lying there to, to pick up, then we probably would have done them by now. So that suggests that there are only harder things and and there may be, you know, policies that could deliver, you know, a non-trivial boost to growth. The government has mentioned making approval of infrastructure projects more efficient, uh, you know, thumbs up, planning reform could help. The reality is, though, that some of those things are politically very, very difficult. Perhaps a few weeks ago, there was this idea that with this majority, with this new mandate, Liz Truss could push a lot of politically difficult but growthy things through. I think given the reaction of investors and MPs to what's been going on, that window has closed. Her room for manoeuvre has has shrunk substantially. And so the likelihood of getting all these difficult things through is, is just looking pretty low. And here's Paul Johnson of the IFS. Well, um, there's huge amounts of uncertainty what's going to happen, and the government may get lucky. So a lot of our problems at the moment are created by supply chain problems, energy prices, food prices, sort of things that are going on internationally. They could sort themselves out. President Putin withdraws from Ukraine, or the 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 gas pipelines from Russia are turned back on. China comes out fully out of lockdown. Supply chain problems disappear that would have a huge effect on growth. 
and you know, we could look back on this kind of conversation and think, oh, what on earth were you complaining about? That is possible. I, I wouldn't want to put a percentage probability on it, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's more than feasible. It's not the most likely outcome, but it's a feasible outcome. No doubt in that world, you know, this trust in Kwasi Kwarteng would claim it was their brilliance that led to the growth in the economy. That, that, that's not going to happen. If, if things turn out well, it will be broadly as a result of luck, not as a result of what was done in uh, the mini-budget a couple of uh, weeks ago. So yes, there are definitely ways through this, uh, but this is a question of, um, of the politicians really sitting on the sidelines hoping rather than being active in creating those good outcomes. So 2022 is perhaps not quite 1972. But it's not exactly where Liz Truss would have hoped to be right now, either. Sitting on the sidelines and praying that global forces come to your rescue is never a comfortable position for a Prime Minister, and especially not one who's still less than six weeks into the job. Now, who knows? This story is moving so fast that all of this might be proven wildly wrong and out of date in a matter of weeks, or even days, after we publish this podcast. I mean, let's face it, not even Downing Street seems to know what government policy will look like this time next week. But from where we're sitting right now, Liz Truss's own dash for growth feels almost as improbable as the last time Britain tried something like this, 50 long years ago. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please follow our podcast feed. And why not check out our ever-growing back catalogue too? I can heartily recommend the episode from season two on the art of political drinking if the dire economic news has left you in need of a large glass of scotch. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. That's it now for a slightly truncated Season 7, but we'll be back at the start of next month with another full season of episodes for you to enjoy. I'll see you then. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.